Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Looks like the screens are temporarily working. At least they're winking at us. One of them works. And so um, just a reminder to bring your Bible or bring your phone with a Bible app on it because you don't always know when our incompetence is going to shine through. And so I'm not techie. So when things don't go right, I just looked at everyone else on the staff and blamed them. So um, you never know if you're going to get those words on the screen. So here we go. The book of Exodus tells us some key things about how to live our lives. And we've been walking through those things, and we've been calling it the top 10. Although there are 613 laws in the Old Testament, there are 10 that are the big ones. They're the ones that God gave Moses on the tablets. They're the ones that we live our life and pattern our life after. And I heard actually a Jewish scholar say this, that if we would, as a culture, simply adopt the 10 commandments, that within culture and in America and all the problems that we face, all of them would quickly evaporate. And so these are our top 10, and we come to you this morning on number 9. And number 9 is personal. Number 9 everyone is guilty of, but number 9 has massive implications. I was driving in the car, and I was talking to my father-in-law, who loves me so much he goes to both of our services when he comes to town. And he takes lots of notes to critique everything I'm going to say that might be possibly wrong. But he's a mentor in my life, and I was talking to him about ministry and things that, you know, after a period of time get really old and things that are a blessing and we kind of talk just in generalities and I I was sharing with him there are certain things that now in my 15th year of ministry full time, there are certain things that I have grown less patient with and the command that we're going to talk about today is it takes the cake. And so one of the things that's happened in my own life, as I've grown closer to the Lord and matured in Christ, I've, I think, gained more of a self, uh, sense of compassion towards people. Um, there are certain things that happen in people's lives, like there's a few things happening right now in the church, people I love dearly, and we're walking closely together, and I, I see my wife even joining me in that, and, and we're just really kind of wrapping our arms around some people that are struggling. And uh, as I'm getting older, I find myself having more compassion for people that are hurting, people that are going through a divorce or, or, you know, single moms in the church or um, people that lost a loved one. We lost someone that was in our church a few months ago. She was in her mid-40s, and Ann and I drove to Brookings together because she lived in Brookings, and we prayed with her, and we just kind of, you know, sat by her bedside. And it's just that purity of ministry, and I think as you get older, you, you get more connected to that. But at the same time, there are things, while I've never maybe had more compassion for people that are hurting, there are also also things as I'm getting older and more stubborn that I have less tolerance for. And one of those things is not just lying, but a lying heart. People that are manipulative. And, And I was thinking of this analogy that someone told me in leadership about five years ago that I want to share with you. When it comes to the issue of lying, and you, you can write some things down today because I think we're going to cover a lot of ground. It's kind of one of those deals where, you know, you're supposed to love people in ministry. Absolutely, amen, right? But, uh, but within that context, within the local church, there are different people with different motives. I don't know if you knew that, but behind every church scenario, there's some drama and there's some people that uh, don't always have the purest of intentions. And when it comes to lying and manipulating, here's what you need to be careful for if you're new in faith. That yes, you're supposed to love people, but when you're loving people, there are two categories of people that you love and you need to treat differently. There are sheep, and that's the masses. Those are people that have needs that aren't perfect. They're hurting and they need your care as someone who loves the Lord. But then there are also these people called wolves. And so sheep need to be protected. 
And wolves need to be sought after and addressed. And, and if you don't understand that in leadership, don't worry. It, it'll make itself known to you. And so though people have different intentions. And, and when it comes to lying and manipulating, everyone has lied at some point, but some people really do have a lying heart. Some people are driven by the fact that they are going to tell you, and we're going to get into this, some truth, and these are the best liars, and then they're going to mix it in with these kind of a mirage of things that are untrue, and they're going to muddy those waters, and they're going to complicate matters, and they're going to deceive people. This happens all the time. And so the ninth commandment is clear on the issue of speech, that it is critical that we tell the truth. Proverbs 18.21 says this, that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. James 3 says the tongue can be a fire set on by hell and can bring life or it can destroy. And then it talks about how powerful such a little thing can be. And then the Jewish culture in the book of Exodus is dealing with this issue. And then Moses lays down the law for them. And he says in Exodus 20:16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so here's the first question. We've been walking through questions in the sermon series. Here's the first one. What does the Bible say? Because that's ultimately all that really matters. How do we define the issue of lying? And this is how I would define it when I read the Bible. It would be intentionally, and that part's key, intentionally working to deceive others. And when it comes to false witness, intentionally working to deceive others about someone else. And so that's when the heart is bad. It's, I, I want them to look bad so that you will feel about them the same way I feel about them. And I can't stand this person, and I don't want to not stand them by myself. And so it's big time, a heart issue. The Old Testament deals with this on a larger scale. There are legal ramifications. And the reason there are legal ramifications is because God knows something that he lays out for Moses that when you were setting up a people and you have systems and you have a law in place, if manipulation and lying is tolerated, then the society in and of itself crumbles. And so there were things that were harsh in the book of Deuteronomy about lying. Here's one of the legal ramifications. So one of them would be within the context of marriage in Deuteronomy chapter 22, that if a man takes a wife and he's intimate with her, and then the way the language, I'm just going to give you the Reader's Digest version, the, reader, the way the language is used, if, if he's intimate with her, and then the Bible says if he hates her, and then accuses her of not being a virgin when he is married, and he's lying about that, then he's in serious trouble. If the man's found to be a liar, then the Bible says he is to be whipped, he's to be fined money, and then he is never to be allowed to divorce her. God is saying this is a serious, serious offense when you degrade someone's character. Here's another thing that happened in the Old Testament with the law. If you accuse someone, and maybe you can kind of say, I agree with this or I don't, but you know, if, you, if you purge yourself, or you, for, you have perjury in court, and today you, you can go to prison for that. But here's what happened in the Old Testament. If you said, you know, you know, Bill killed someone and I saw him do it, and then it turns out that for whatever reason you just hated Bill and you wanted to say that Bill killed someone that he didn't kill, when you went to court in the Old Testament, if you accused someone in court of something they didn't do, then you wouldn't just go to prison because you broke the law. You would take on their penalty. I think it's kind of clever, really. I mean, it's like the greatest setup of all time. And so if you said they killed someone and the penalty for killing someone is being stoned to death, and you were lying about that, you would have to check your heart, and this would get people to tell the truth, because then what would happen is they would stone you. And what God's saying within all of that 
is this is a big deal. Why is it a big deal theologically? Because God, and it'll be on the screen for you, God, the one screen that's winking, God cannot lie. That's deeply theological. But that's what the Bible says. You know, these discussions that we all have, can God make a rock so big he can't move? Well, here's what God cannot do. God cannot lie because it's within his character and nature to tell the truth. He is the truth. Truth isn't something that he tells. He is the essence of it. It says this in Hebrews chapter 6. It's impossible for God to lie. In fact, I think it's important to notice this about the character and nature of Jesus. When it comes to truth, Jesus is a standard by which all reality is measured. He's like the scale. That it's not subjective, like we've been told in culture. The truth is objective. God is and always will be an unchanging standard of truth. He is truth, and He is how we measure truth. I've been kind of outspoken about the fact that I've been trying to do something since Christmas. I went to Peru. There's going to be a lot of analogies here when it comes to lying and telling the truth. And uh, I went to Peru, and something happened that was very damaging. Every Peruvian on staff made fun of me because I've gained a lot of weight in 2022. And uh, I was upset and scarred and damaged. And then I saw the pictures and I went, well, you know, they're onto something. And Osmar, who you mostly all know, said, Gordo, man, what happened? What happened to Rodney? I'm like, oh, my gosh. It was, it was like the intervention that I needed. I was emotionally eating, and I have a lot of emotions. And so i have uh, trying to get the baby weight off, and since my oldest is about a legal adult, it's been a while. And so I said to, I said to myself, I'm going to do this. This is it. I'm going to low-carb it, and I'm going to pick up the next fad diet because that's how you stay at a certain point in weight. You just pick up a fad, and it's not a lifestyle. That's all a lie. So I was like, I'm going to do that, and I'm trying to lose some weight. And then, then people ask me that are close to me, how much weight have you lost? And then I just throw out a number. Right? How many of you ever lied? Okay. <laughs> throw out a number. My wife asked me, how much weight have you lost? I'm like, 500 pounds. It's amazing. But uh, I throw out this number, but then there's something that I have to do. Regardless of the number that I throw out, there's a certain point that I have to step on the scale. And it's a dreaded time. It's an anxiety-provoking time. In fact, my wife taught me the best ways to get on the scale. Things I didn't even know. Like, if you weigh yourself in the morning, you weigh a little less. Did you know that? Are you awake? Yeah, there's a little trick for you. It's like, how, how can I deceive myself? Well, weigh yourself in the morning or, you know, go to the bathroom and, uh, you know, like dehydrate yourself. And wrestlers all know how this works. They come to new life. Um, there are certain tricks that you can do when you get on the scale to try to manipulate it. But at the end of the day, and so like I've even tried this. I thought to myself, if I kind of get on the scale like a praying mantis and I'm light-footed, have you ever done that? I'm like, then I won't weigh, you know, like as if that, like I can manipulate the scale. And here's my point. You can't manipulate the scale because the scale is the standard, thank you, is the standard of truth in your life. And I can tell people whatever I want. I'm down this much weight. And then I have to get on the scale and look at myself in the mirror and go, you are a bold-faced liar. You want to manipulate the scale? But at the end of the day, the scale is the scale. And then that's God. God's the scale. God isn't speaking truth only. He is, in his essence, truth in and of itself. So we cannot manipulate that. 
We own that. God is truth. He is the standard. He is the scale. He's not subjective. He's objective. And people don't like truth because they don't want their lives measured against the standard. Let me, let me give you a little insight as to why culture goes so berserk when you start saying this is true and this isn't. The problem they have is they don't want to get on the spiritual scale. They don't want to be told in their own sin that they're wrong. Because if you're wrong, then maybe you have to change, and people don't want to change. People don't look to the Word of God as their standard, so they make the Bible an inspirational book. People that go to church on Sundays all around Aberdeen do this. Churches, church movements do this. It's an inspirational book. It has some truth in it, but it's not the truth. It's not the standard. It's not infallible. And God is so clear. I am truth. I am the scale. And so God is truth. God cannot lie, but here's another thing. When we're talking about lying, the Bible says that God hates. You're like, what? God hates? No, God hates lies. There's things that God hates. In the book of Proverbs, there are six things the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination, and he says this about lying. He says, I hate a false witness who breathes out lies. Titus 1, verse 2, says God never lies. He's never untrustworthy. He hates those things that work against the very core of his nature. And because God made you, God saved you, God redeemed you, it repulses him when you align yourself with someone in the Bible called Satan himself. So God is truth. God hates lies. And then here's the next thing about what the Bible says about this topic, that Satan is the father of lies. Satan is a liar. The Bible defines him as an accuser of the brethren. In fact, he's so serious about his lies that when Jesus is going to the cross, he is kind of putting together trial after trial as people are being deceived by Satan in a way that's very deceptive. And they're going to trials and they're, and they're making accusations against Christ that are, that are completely wrong. And he's setting the stage because Satan is, in his very essence, a liar. And we learned this in the book of John. If you have your Bibles, flip there real quick. Chapter 8. Maybe you've heard it. He's talking to the Pharisees and Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He's talking about Satan. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So how much truth does Satan himself have? It's a complete vacuum of truth. There's a deficit of truth. His very nature is the exact opposite nature of God the Father. His very nature is nothing he says is true. Why is lying such a big deal? Because how scary is this reality that when you lie or when you have the heart of a liar and a manipulator that you take on the very nature of the accuser and then you align yourself with the scariest thing that you could ever align yourself with, Satan himself. So God is the source, the very essence of truth and then adversely or inversely, Satan is the very source of lies. This is a huge deal. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, John 8 says. For he's a liar and the father of lies. So there's team Jesus, there's team Satan. Team Jesus is truth. Satan is the father of lies. Second question. I'm realizing that I'm preaching, number one, I have no voice from the state bees. But I'm also, like, I didn't even kind of put this together. This is intense. And so let's keep tracking it because things that are intense are, are very much often a word from the Lord. So we want to 
really pay attention. How do we lie? That's a big one. How do we lie? Well, there's kind of a different category. It's, it's pretty simple. I know this is going to blow your mind when I tell you this. We lie by saying things that are untrue. That's what a lie is, right? But then more specifically, what are the forms of untruths that we walk in? These things that are a little maybe grayer that the Bible is clear about. Or here's how you lie. Here's how I lie. Number one, the Bible says in Psalm 12, 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And so one of the ways that we lie is flattery. And, and, and so then maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal, but, but according to the Bible, that's a huge deal. Flattery defined by insincere and excessive praise intended to manipulate. Flattery defined by every teenage boy that you desperately want your daughter to stay away from. Are you tracking? I was at the State Bees for the last three days, just people watching. And one of my friends who's here today was telling me when we were sitting in the crowd last night in the Battle Dome, 5,000 maybe people, however many, like, felt like a million just chanting. And it was, were you guys there? Who was there? It was crazy, wasn't it? It was insane. It was awesome. And I was people watching. And, and there's a lot of people watching to do. And as I was people watching, um, the game went into overtime. And God ordained Aberdeen Christian to win. Did you see that? And I, I lost my voice over it. I watched my 17-year-old son get so intense. He got hit in the nose. He was bleeding. And then uh, someone fouled out that was much better at basketball than him. So he got called up. And I watched him. This is how intense the state bees are. I watched him snorting the blood back into his sinuses so that he wouldn't get pulled out. And I thought, that's a warrior. And then after the game, there was another game. And I had to get back for the after party here. And we had to help set up. And so I'm, I'm in the hallways. And I saw about four teenage boys, two of which I knew. And I won't call them out. But you know who you are if you go to New Life. Four teenage boys talking to a girl, and I was walking by, and I could hear them saying stupid stuff to her. And I was thinking to myself, if that was my daughter, I would absolutely murder all four of these teenage boys. And what do teenage boys do? And they're not even clever at it, but what do they do? They pick up something that flattery is a tool to manipulate. And so flattery is a tool to manipulate, and flattery is a nasty form of lying. Here's another one. We just... We're deceptive. 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. And so the Apostle John, John is about 100 years old, and he's writing this in his last days to the church. And I've never been 100, but I assume by the time you hit 100, everyone seems like a child. And he's saying that deception is absolutely from the enemy. Let no one deceive you. And so there's this kind of duality to that type of context that, that on one hand, to, to deceive someone is wrong, to deceive someone is lying, but then here's the tricky part, to be deceived is also on you. Let no one deceive you. Major your life against the truth. The definition of deception is twisting what was the truth into a weapon to harm and to destroy. And you see it all throughout Scripture. You see it from Satan himself. He goes into the garden. Sin's entering into the equation. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to fall. And what does he do? He does the same thing as when he takes Jesus up uh, and he starts tempting him in the wilderness. Does God really say this? Is this really how it works? He's using deception as the main tool in his tool bag. That's one of the ways that we lie. Here's another way that we lie. 
You lie through slander. Leviticus 19.16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer, defined by malicious and often false information used to inflict harm. And the tricky part is, we'll get into this a little bit, when it comes to slander and when it comes to lying, oftentimes there will be truth mixed in within it, right? And, and sometimes they're just insane. There, there is this really profound Facebook group in Aberdeen. It's called Aberdeen Rants and Raves. Have you heard of it? Did you know that I made it? Someone said on Aberdeen Rants and Raves, and it's like, I feel like I'm just kind of poking a bear. But um, I don't know who they are. They said, uh, does anyone know of a good church? I keep hearing about this place called New Life, that people go to New Life in Aberdeen. And they say, oh, yeah, like then people start, oh, I got a new life, I got a new life. I don't have this, but someone was screenshotting it to me. And then they said this, and I'm speaking generally. They said, I want to go there, but I've heard a lot of weird stuff about Rodney. <laughs> I'm thinking, I can see why. There's probably a lot of it that's true, and, you know, like there's perfect, and then there's me down here. And then they said something super hurtful. They said, the places I've heard it from are his friends. And I thought, I've got to get new friends. Like, my front row right here, these are my boys. Like, who's talking smack about me? I don't know. And so sometimes slander is true. I'm sure some of the things they've heard, are like, disappointingly, I've gone, well, you know, I felt in that area, I felt in this area. But, but even when there's truth mixed into it, to publicly attack or to have a motive that's so corrupt is wrong. Emails, social media. People are so brave behind a keyboard, are they not? What does Jesus say in Matthew 12? On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For every time they talk about someone on social media and say that their friends don't like them, right? They're going to be held accountable. We say things that everything we say, that is the scariest thing because I'm a talker, right? I'm a talker. Everything I say, I'm going to be held accountable for. Not just in whether or not it's true, but in the context in which I tell it, in the motive in which my heart is driven. Impure motives. Here's another form of lying. This is a huge one. False teaching. Because the worst lie, and maybe you need to write this one down, the worst lie you will ever tell or the worst lie that you will ever hear is about none other than God himself. And if someone says something about me, whatever. There's people that are a big deal. I'm not one of them. But when people say something about the God that I serve, now we have a problem. That's a huge deal. And so false teaching is a lie that's intended to try to defame the name of God and his son Jesus. This is what false teachers do. False teachers write the latest book. False teachers jump on the latest bandwagon. False teachers will often align themselves with culturally popular views to try to bring fame to their own name. They will try to discredit God, and they will try to discredit his word, and this is what they do. They'll talk about the Bible in this context, that it's an old book, that God says things that can't be true in it, because we've evolved too much to buy into that jargon. This is what false teachers do. They did it in the early church. They do it now. C.S. Lewis, one of the most brilliant minds of the last century, calls it chronological snobbery, that, that false teachers often take this vein that they say to themselves that people in the last few thousand years have been so dumb that they have collectively always thought this, and now through the Age of Enlightenment, I have come to discover that because it's culturally relevant and culturally popular, that now I hold to this view. And all of a sudden, the last few thousand years, everyone hasn't understood it. 
C.S. Lewis says that's chronological snobbery, that somehow in this moment, in this time, you think that you have so many things figured out, and all the people that have read Scripture and gone before you somehow are clueless. And God's looking at his church in this culture of lies, and he's saying to his church, I don't need an editor. I don't need to provide my editing services to God. That what he says stands on its own. False teachers love to pick apart miracles of Jesus, a biblical definition of sexuality and sin. Just, just kind of pick, pick the response. And so we lie about saying things that are half true. We lie about saying things that are completely false. One of the trickiest ways that we lie is intermingling some truth and some lies. Let, let me give you an example of this. This is the go-to example for me. We think to ourselves, well, if I don't tell a blatant lie that somehow I'm not lying, let, let me just show you how this works in real time. And I'm like in the triple digits of this example. Every person, not every person, that's a lie. A lot of people that have come to me in the last 15 years with relational problems that don't want to be married anymore. And you can take this to the bank and every pastor will tell you the same thing. They come to me as if somehow I'm a judge of their life. And it's like, it's so predictable that it's, it's hard to take it seriously at this point. And they come to me as if they're, I'm a judge and they're a defense attorney, but they're a defense attorney on their own behalf. And they come to talk to me, maybe with or without their spouse. And when it's with their spouse, it can really get ugly. And when they come to talk to me, they have a laundry list. I'm, I'm talking, they have wrote a doctoral thesis on why their spouse is the devil. I'm not exaggerating. Because there's no love like marriage love and there's no hate like marriage hate. Those things that are designed to do the most good are also have the capacity to do the most harm. And so when it goes bad, it goes bad. I have never seen anger and hate like marriage hate. And so they come to me as if somehow I'm the judge over their life. And they need to show me why their spouse is so big, uh, bad. And then by doing so, that somehow I have like, I can open my desk drawer. Stay with me. I can open my desk drawer and give them a pass. Well, here's a pass. Like, here's a hall pass. You can go get divorced. And, and they will lay out this case. And in laying out this case, it's so ironic because a lot of the things that they're saying are probably true. But, but here's how it works. Within that truth are also a cluster of lies or a distorted perception to somehow elevate themselves and trash their spouse. And it, it is so corrupt, that person that you're supposed to love the most, the person, the person that you're supposed to have by your side to become one till death do you part, is that same person that now you are throwing under the bus on such a deep level to somehow gain justifications for your actions. And then I meet with the other person, and it's like, well, now this person's the victim. No, 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 no. This person has their doctrinal thesis ready, too, why the other person is the devil, and they are about as close to Jesus as you can possibly be. And then the reality is the truth is somewhere in the middle. Now, there are exceptions. There are times that the truth is really on one side or the other. <clears throat> but not all the time. Usually it's like this whole bag of garbage where everyone's throwing the other person under the bus. And it's not that they're not saying the truth in some way. It's just that they're taking the truth and leaving certain things out of it and inserting their own narrative for their own gain. And that's one of the ways that we deceive ourselves, we deceive others, 
And we try to deceive God, and that never works. So why do we lie? Well, one of the ways that we lie and one of the motives that we lie within is to gossip, to hurt others, to report information. Whether it's true or not with the wrong motive is an is a ability that we have to hurt others. That's what's driving our motivations. How do you, how do you know if you're gossiping? Here, here's how you know. Here's the litmus test. You ready? You can write this down. The way you know you're a gossip or the way you know someone else is a gossip is if they say something about someone and then you ask them if you can quote them. Can I quote you on that? Can I go bring that to the other person? And if all of a sudden they're backpedaling, which I've had to do a lot in my own life because I'm a talker, if someone doesn't want to be quoted, then there's probably a reality that their heart is messed up. James 4 talks about this being an act of judgment, that we love to slander, that we love to tear down. I heard this story by a preacher a while ago. I tried to tell it in church, and I butchered it, so I'm going to tell you again. He said there are four pastors in a room, and they're having a small group time, and they come from different backgrounds and denominations. And I won't even try to get the denominations right, and just to set this up, it is a joke. It's not real. That's not how you're supposed to tell a joke, but let's keep rolling. And he said there are these four pastors, and they're all having confession time because they're accountability partners. And he said, the first pastor gets up. He says, guys, i got to be honest with you. You know I have struggles. He said, the first, I just want to be the first one to lay my own life out there. There are times that I watch movies that I should not watch. Like There are things on my Netflix history that maybe would appall you, and I just have to let you know. And the second guy gets up and says, well, if you're going to be honest, I'm going to be honest. There are times where I'm going to Sioux Falls. And before I get to Sioux Falls from Aberdeen, I hit up the casino. And I can throw it down on that blackjack table because I get far enough away from my community where I pastor where no one knows me. And the third pastor says, man, if, if you're going to be honest, I'm going to be honest. There are times when I leave town and I like to vape and I like to drink and I can get carried away. And people think I'm one way and I'm another way. And then the last guy gets up and goes, man, guys, I just got to tell you, my problem is gossip and I cannot wait to get out of here. I feel like I told it right this time. <laughs> Gossip is something that destroys, destroys. Or maybe we lie to avoid negative consequences. That's common sense. Or here's a common one. We lie to get what we want. And even in trying to get what we want, we, we lie to the point where we have these narcissistic tendencies because it's all about us. Or here's a really popular one. Maybe you lie to feel better about ourselves because we're so insecure that when we spread lies about people, then we somehow elevate ourselves. And so we walk in this insecurity. Who do we lie to? We lie to people that we love. We lie to people that we hate. And here's the most ironic one. We lie publicly or create a public image. Back to this whole social media context. We lie to people that we do not care about. We will put something out to the masses to get people to love us that we don't even know. And here's the scariest one. Write this down. We lie to ourselves. In fact, I would imagine to, to just assume this is true for you, that it's true in my own life. No, no one's lied to me more than me. No one's lied to me more than me. And I don't want to be held accountable to God on that scale. No one has lied to me more than me. We lie to God, 
and we lie to God with devastating consequences. In the Bible, when people lied to God, we covered this last week, hell would ensue. Ananias and Sapphira lying to God. God takes their life. Was it Achan in the book of uh, Judges? Or not in the book of Judges, in the book of Joshua, he's lying to God. God takes out his family. These things have devastating consequences. Here's the last one. Here's kind of the, what we do with all of this. This is a lot of stuff. What do, we, what do we do? How do we overcome a deceptive heart? Because if we were to be honest, all of us fall short. What do we do with a deceptive heart? Here, here's the first thing. And, and this kind of goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you didn't have to go to the Sermon on the Mount. And when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, well, Jesus keeps saying, well, you've heard this. You, you've heard don't commit adultery. You've heard, you know, don't, don't, don't hate your brother, don't hate your neighbor, but, but I, or don't kill, but I tell you don't hate. What Jesus always does from the Old Testament to the New Testament is he goes from a hard law to follow to an impossible standard to, to even align yourself with. Because what Jesus does is he says, you said, I'm going to not do this to try to follow God. But what I'm telling you is the real problem before it ever manifests in your hands starts in the condition of your heart. And if you don't deal with things at a heart level, you will never get right with Jesus because the gospel is all about transforming. Look at me. It's about transforming your heart. Transforming your heart. So the first thing that we have to do if we want to not have a a lying and manipulative heart is we have to address the sin or we have to address the heart issue that precedes the lie. That behind every lie is an underlying sin. So, so for example, slander, it's really fun, right? And why do you slander? Well, because you're jealous or because you're angry. And if you don't deal with the fact that you're jealous, insecure, or angry, then you're always going to keep slandering because you're not getting to the heart root of the problem. Or or maybe, you know, for, for you, it's insecurity. And so you always lie about how perfect your life is. You always put out a perception of yourself that you need other people to believe. Every time someone tells a story, you've got to story top it. Because you're insecure. Or, or maybe you, know, you, you are addicted, you're sexually immoral. And so you have to tell lie after lie after lie to predict, or to protect what is most precious to your heart. Or maybe the underlying motive is greed, and so because you have greed in your heart, People always become objects, and so you always have to lie to make the sell. Maybe you have this unhealthy need for attention, so you will lie about anything that either makes you the hero or the victim of your narrative. But if you want to just simply address this issue of lying, but you don't get to the heart behind the lie, then the lie is never going to change. Here's what it's going to do, and pay attention to this. It's just going to ping pong back and forth to other issues in your life. It's going to just move around. And so if we want to overcome this deceptive heart that we have, then we have to deal with the heart itself and address the sin that precedes the lie. Here's another thing. This is what the Old Testament lays out, and then Jesus really hits its home. If we want to have a heart that's pure and focused on the truth, then we have to love. And unlike the message of self-help and the culture around us, the goal isn't to love self. I've never had a problem loving myself. That's always been the problem. But if we want to see this issue change and we want to have a pure heart that's honest and truthful, then what we need to do, according to the Old Testament, where we don't wrong our neighbor, is we have to love our neighbor more than ourselves. 
because of all the problems that I've ever had and all the lies that I've ever told, mostly being to myself, underneath the root of all of those lies is a heart that's very selfish and self-absorbed. And here's what liars always do. Pay attention. What liars always do is they always have a worldview that is focused on themselves. And they have a heart that deceives and they have a heart that's built on a construct of self-preservation. Why does the husband that comes home at whatever hours of the night smelling like perfume lie? Well, he's self-preserving. Why does the person who's trying to make the cell that will do things that are deceptive and dishonest do what he does? Because he has a heart that's full of greed and focused on himself or herself. And so then the antidote becomes, well, now that I'm a Christian, I've loved myself for 43 years of life, but now that I'm a Christian, I have to lay my own life down at the foot of the cross, and I have to love my neighbor more than myself. And when I love my neighbor more than myself, then all of a sudden I can't do those things. Because I'm elevating them in a position higher than myself. And then if you're following the logic train, then of course the closer is this. If you want to see this heart issue change, you deal with the heart. You love other people more than yourself. You take yourself off the center stage. You're not the king of your own castle. And then the closer would clearly be that you also have to, and then first and foremost, love Jesus Christ more than you love yourself. You have to love him in his very nature and essence, not as someone who simply tells the truth, but as someone who is in his nature the truth. And when you love him and you want to serve him and you understand that the gospel is centered around the idea of truth, that everything that breaks the gospel down is centered on lies. Jesus says, I am the truth as he heads to the cross. Trial after trial is taking place where he's being lied about, slandered, and shamed. And then perfect Jesus endures the shame. He heads to the cross. He dies three days later. He rises from death. And then he rises from death and he backs up his claim that he's the Messiah. Everything about him is true. People see a resurrected Jesus. Now all of a sudden, they are making claims that he's the Messiah. They're standing up for truth. His disciples see him resurrected, knowing the claims about his own deity are true. And then they all go to their own death, except for John, for the sake of the gospel. Because they know one thing, that Jesus Christ doesn't just tell true things. Jesus Christ is the truth. If you don't know that and you come here today and maybe you just wanted to hang out and go to a church that has coffee and donuts and is relaxed and you know you kind of like it here and it's comfortable and you, you like the worship songs and you can connect to the stories that I tell, if that's your only motive, man, you've missed it because you're going to die and go before Jesus and here's the truth. You are going to be apart from him for eternity in this place called hell. That's the truth. Jesus Christ is not telling you true things. He is the truth. He is the truth. And so to love Jesus more than yourself is to pick up your cross and to follow him and to put yourself on the back burner, not just second, but last. So that he is your source of truth. I was thinking to myself as we close, that in, in, in the 18 years that new life has existed and, and people that have flowed, praise him, can come back up. The people that have flowed through this place over and over again, hearing story after story, and it really has been an absolute honor. It's been an honor. 
that one of the core things I find when I meet with people one-on-one is that when it comes to this issue of truth and lying, and and please pay attention because this is it, when it comes to this issue of truth and lying, that so many of us aren't just telling lies, but we're absolutely living a lie. That in this work-hard Midwestern culture, people are putting on a persona of themselves that they think other people need to see. And then I watch them. You know, we've baptized almost 1,000 people at New Life. We celebrated that on Celebration Sunday. I've watched them as they get saved, kind of shed that persona and be vulnerable and be broken and address those issues in their heart that then allow them to be used by Christ. And they used to look pretty. They used to look packaged. They used to look professional. But now they look like Christ is called them to look. They still have those same basic characteristics, but they, but they have this reality to their personhood where they no longer live a lie and they're exposing themselves. They're being vulnerable. It's amazing to see what God has done. Key leaders in our community. I've watched their hearts soften to the gospel as they've responded to it. And so I want to challenge you with that closing idea. It's not just about telling the truth or telling a lie. It becomes this massive heart issue in our life on this subject. Are you living a lie? Are you deceiving other people around you? And then more importantly, are you deceiving yourself? And then most importantly, are you attempting to deceive God? Because of all the people you can lie to, you can lie to people, you can lie to me so easy, you can come in here, you can look pretty good, and I can drink that Kool-Aid because I don't know. And then it gets closer, like the close relationships in your life, it gets harder to lie. It's really tough to lie by the time you get to a marital relationship. They know you. And then what we can find is even sometimes, although it's hard to do that, you can still do it. What we still can do even, and this is what we're so good at, we can lie to ourselves. We can lie about where we stand and what we think is a right relationship with God. But what we can never do, what we can never do, is we can never effectively lie to the very source of truth that allows us to have breath in our lungs. Because God is not just a truth or a truth speaker. He is the very essence and source of truth. So then the challenge becomes, are you pouring yourself out in a way where you're saying, God, I've been living a lie, but I want to walk in truth. And the way that you do that is very simple. You talk to Christ right now, right here. You say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need you to save me, and I believe that you are the truth that I need. And I'm going to walk in a new found relationship with you where I give you my sin. And I believe when you went to the cross, you died for it. And then you rose three days later so that I can have life. And I want you to take over my life and be my source of truth. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. As we come into this space and we head towards Easter, God, you use these words that are of you.